Welcome to The Landscape, your show about America's parks and public lands. I'm your host, Aaron Weiss, at the Center for Western Priorities in Denver. And I'm Kate Gretzinger, your co-host in Salt Lake City, Utah. Today on the pod, we're talking about clean energy permitting. This is a big topic in Congress right now. A recent e news story called permitting legislation the white whale of this session. Many Democrats and Republicans seem to agree that we need to change our laws to allow permitting for transmission lines to occur more efficiently, but no one can seem to agree on how to do that. If you remember back to last session, Democratic Majority Leader Chuck Schumer made a gentleman's agreement with Senator Joe Manchin to pass a bill regarding permitting in exchange for Manchin's vote on the Inflation Reduction Act. Manchin and Schumer tried to pass that bill but failed by a narrow margin when progressive Democrats broke off and refused to support it. That bill included a number of deadlines for NEPA reviews, that's the National Environmental Policy Act, which is often referred to as the country's bedrock environmental law. Longtime listeners may remember we spoke to researcher Jamie Plune about that bill on the podcast last year. Around the same time, Republicans introduced their own bill that would completely gut NEPA. Language from both of those bills is back in circulation this session, so we're going to chat with a clean energy consultant about what's actually holding up permitting and what changes, if any, are needed to make sure the clean energy transition occurs fast enough to combat climate change. But before that, let's do the news. Indigenous leaders, as well as members of Arizona's congressional delegation, are calling on President Biden to protect the area around the Grand Canyon. They're proposing a one-million-acre national monument called Baj Nuavjo Itakukveni Grand Canyon National Monument. That name, I know it is a bit of a mouthful, but it's because it is a combination of terms from Havasupai, Baj Nuavjo means where tribes roam, and a Hopi term, Itakukveni, which means our footprints. The reason tribes are asking for this monument is because of the threat of uranium mining that exists around Grand Canyon National Park. The proposed monument wouldn't prevent existing mines from operating, but it would stop any new mining claims, as well as the development of nearly 600 undeveloped mining claims that are within the proposed monument's borders. We put together an explainer video with our friends at Grand Canyon Trust a couple years back explaining this threat in more detail. The very short version is that the seeps and springs around the Grand Canyon are all connected, but scientists don't know exactly how and where. So there is a very real risk that any uranium contamination of any water in that area quickly ends up in the Grand Canyon itself, and that makes it an existential threat to the Havasupai who live at the floor of the Grand Canyon. Rob Gramlich is the founder and president of Grid Strategies, LLC, where he consults on electric transmission and power markets. He's co-founder of Americans for a Clean Energy Grid, the Watt Coalition, and the Future Power Markets Forum. Rob, thanks for being here today. You're welcome. Great to be with you. Okay, so let's start with the basics, because uh, I don't think anyone listening today is a, an expert on grid strategies, which is why you're here, or grid transmission. Um, what is transmission, and why is it so important to the implementation of the Inflation Reduction Act? Sure. Well, I think transmission is really critical to integrate very large amounts of wind and solar power all over the country. Uh, and wind and solar power are among the cheapest sources of carbon reductions for, for the country, and in fact, almost all countries. So we're seeing this all around the world, is that one of the 
the cheapest ways to decarbonize is to deploy a lot of wind and solar. But to do that, you have to build up your, your grids. We can talk about how to do that, but it's basically moving a lot of power across large areas. Uh, and of course, you have to figure out how do you use things like existing rights of way to minimize you know, impacts. So I'm sure we'll talk about that as well. But that's the idea. Well, I, let, let's go ahead and, and talk about that. Why can't you just use the power lines that we've got today? You see them all over the country, run along interstates. Uh, is that not enough? It is not enough. That's the that's the issue. Now, there are opportunities to do that. There are, for example, retiring coal plants that have a, a very large interconnection with the grid, a high voltage uh, connection to deliver power. And there there is some sort of uh, synergy with uh, the locations of some wind and solar locations, but we need to move a lot more uh, than that. Wind and solar are very um, uh, location dependent. The best solar and wind resources tend to be very far from population centers. So there's that dynamic, but there's a, there's a, an additional dynamic with wind and solar, which is that uh, the wind isn't always blowing at a given location, but it is always blowing somewhere. Uh, and solar has, you know, cloudy areas, sunny areas across hundreds of miles uh, of distance. You can integrate areas that are getting more or less wind and solar power. So when you integrate it across this really wide area and you end up moving power back and forth, and in fact, in multiple directions, then you get an overall steady supply. And so Whereas it's been sort of easy in phase one of renewable development in this country to almost kind of put it anywhere and not do a lot of transmission to go to phase two, which means like going from 20% renewables to 40 and then 60 and 80, you're going to need a lot more transmission. Okay. So that makes sense. We need more transmission lines and we need them in places where they don't exist right now. Um, why does it seem like it's so hard to build these transmission lines? Everyone's talking about how we need to basically upend everything to do to build these things. Uh, why is that? Yeah, well, first, uh, it's not impossible. And in fact, we've done it on a large scale already in this country. So it's important to keep in mind uh, that we don't have to upend society as we know it. And we don't have to um, be defeatist about the whole prospect. Um, we built uh, significant transmission lines in the upper Midwest um, about 15 years ago. The lines were energized um, by about a decade ago. Um, from These are lines sort of from the Dakotas and Iowa towards Chicago and points east. Uh, we also did the same in, uh, well, the state of Texas did the same in uh, the panhandle in West Texas, bringing a lot of wind power. Uh, then turns out then solar came on and used a lot of the same lines. Um, you get a lot more um, power out of the uh, solar panels in West Texas than you do near Houston. Um, and you get a lot more wind uh, in those same Western areas. So they've been delivering that power to uh, Houston and Dallas. Um, California did uh, some. There's a Tehachapi area of California. They got a lot of wind and solar. Uh, so around the country, around a decade ago, we did a lot, this big surge of transmission. Um, and uh, in some cases, new rights of way were developed, but also existing corridors were used. Um, then nothing got planned for the last decade. Long story. We just didn't do it. Um, there is a little bit of a 
resurgence now. Um, in the upper Midwest, they're doing what they call the long range transmission plan. Uh, interestingly, 85% of those lines are on existing corridors. So they're taking existing rights of way. Think of like, you know, Midwestern utilities that got these rights of way, you know, 80 years ago or something for lines. Uh, and with sometimes with new technologies, you can squeeze a lot more through those corridors uh, than you could in the past. And a lot of these lines are, you know, that old anyway, and are due to be replaced. So you can, you can do uh, a lot of this transmission on existing corridors, not all of it, but, but, uh, you know, if you plan well, you can, you know, minimize other impacts and, and deliver more. So that brings us to the Inflation Reduction Act that passed last year, touted as the, the biggest investment in the energy transition, st- combating climate change we've ever seen in this country. What was in the IRA in terms of electric transmission lines specifically? Well, not very much, unfortunately. Um even though a lot of the selling was around uh, the grid, quote unquote, the grid. Well, the grid really meant uh, generation, uh, hydrogen, um, carbon capture, uh, things like that. Certainly a lot of wind, solar storage support, tax credits for those. Um, But unfortunately, there was also a tax credit for transmission that was in the House passed Build Back Better, which, as you recall, went over to the Senate, sat around for a long time until all the senators, including Senator Manchin, were okay with it and it passed. But when that thing was released, the Inflation Reduction Act, the transmission tax credit had fallen on the cutting room floor. So there were some other things here and there, there was a, a little bit of a strengthening of the backstop siting provision. This is where um, there is a provision for federal permitting. Uh, the states kind of go first, but then the federal government through the Department of Energy and FERC have a have a role. That was a helpful improvement, actually, in the uh, inflation. Or, sorry, the uh, the other one, the IIJA uh, investment. Uh, and Jobs Act, Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. Um, And there was some money, there was some loan authority in the IRA. um, And DOE has very good transmission people and a new grid deployment office and a loan program office that I think are interested in using all those things. Um, Unfortunately, just the the dollars there are very small and the, um, the particular tools like loans are not necessarily what the transmission business is looking for. So um, anyway, we were hoping for a lot more, but I think what this leads us to is uh, the grid probably arguably was already the big constraint on large scale renewable development. And now it really is because now we are putting all this, you know, additional cheap renewables on the grid and they're already stuck. There's uh, 1.8 terawatts, which is a massive amount of generation that is basically stuck in the queue trying to get on the grid. And um, we, we, you know, we have a log jam until we can alleviate the, the constraint. Rob, that raises a question in my mind. We hear Senator Manchin and um, senators and uh, congressmen from both sides of the aisle talking a lot about permitting right now. And they're saying permitting is the only way that we can implement the IRA. Permitting reform is the only way we can implement the IRA. How much truth is there in those statements and how much, I mean, you just mentioned that really funding seems to be a 
or or tax incentives and funding seem to be a big constraint as well. So I'm curious if you could uh, parse that out for us. Sure, it's a great question and a and a nuanced answer. Um, you know, permitting is is very helpful. I don't think it's the you know the 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 main problem or the you know the only solution. Uh, I do think it's the funding that is the the bigger problem. Um, and just to say one more word on that, you know, think about if we needed an interstate highway system and we paid for it with, um, you know, through the hundreds of electric utilities that are all around the country uh, by, you know, passing a hat and saying, hey, who will contribute? Um, the fact is it's a public good. Everybody benefits. It's very hard to pay for public goods that way with people voluntarily paying for what's needed. Um, so we do need um, federal regulators or, you know, tax credit um, types of provisions, I think, to um, to take care of the funding. Uh, I think another area um, we often describe the, the barriers to transmission as the three Ps. There's planning, permitting, and paying. We just talked about the paying part. Uh, uh, the planning part is also important. I mentioned the Midwest is planning these long-range transmission plans. They did also the same a decade ago. That worked well when you had all the states working together on regional plans uh, and, again, optimizing existing corridors, and that's all uh, very helpful. And when they did that, like the decade ago experience, they planned 16 major lines, uh, or sorry, 17 major lines, and 16 out of 17 did get their permitting. They went through the state and the local process and, you know, sometimes federal permits or they crossed a river and they needed this permit or they crossed, you know, some national park and they needed that permit. Um, well, they got it done. I mean, it take, takes five to seven years on a good day, but they did get it done. And 16 out of 17 is a batting average, you know, we can get a lot done with, right? So it's not that you cannot permit and it, 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 that's not the case. And it's not the case that you can never cross multiple states. Um, it's been done. Um, so, but, uh, you know, that said, the third P is the permitting. Um, there are a lot of lines out there that are important lines that are, uh, uh, are now 15 years in the making. Um, and that's too long. So to, to meet the scale um, that is needed, we do need to improve the, the permitting process. And so there are um, there are proposals and important discussions in Congress and at uh, the Department of Energy and FERC uh, around improving and speeding up the permitting. So we've talked to, to academics who've studied NEPA reviews, and I, I apologize, I'm going to stop my, my own alphabet soup there, National Environmental Policy Act, which when we're talking about environmental reviews is usually the first law that comes into play. And the the take there that we've, we've heard is that uh, it's not necessarily a, a problem with NEPA or the law itself, it's simply capacity and enough warm bodies to do the reviews quickly enough and not anything to do with NEPA itself. Is that, does that comport with what you're seeing and, and what's causing these delays? I, I think it, that's generally correct in that uh, I, I don't see um, 
any fundamental change to NEPA being viable or advisable. I don't think you need to do that. And, and why would we, um, uh, and the, the same generally goes for the, I've heard the number of like 60 some odd, uh, other laws that also, you know, end up requiring permits for large infrastructure. FLIPMA, Clean Air Act, Clean Water Act, the list goes on. Yeah. 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 And, and it, and, and it goes to a, a number of things that, most people have not heard of, but are out there. So, um, you know, I think basically those, those stay in place in some way, but we need to speed up, speed up the process. Um, and, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of truth. Um, uh, if folks listen to the Ezra Klein podcast, there's, um, there's sort of a, a view that's getting around, uh, that, you know, in this society, we have built up whole organizations and almost a culture around how to block things and delay things and go through extensive process such that compliance with things like NEPA, you know, used to be, you know, with documents that were 200 pages, now they're 20,000 pages. And the, the examples like that go on and on of the, of the delays in the process. And, uh, and that, as you said, Aaron, that, that leads to um, uh, uh, agency shortfalls and short, you know, short staffed agencies trying to manage all of this. And, uh, and honestly, I, I think some of the agencies, um, you know, if you're a career individual at that agency, you sort of have a constituency of things you're trying to protect and you don't really have a, you know, career advancing incentive to get things approved quickly. Um, at least that's my perspective, probably biased from having worked with a lot of, um, you know, interests in, uh, moving transmission forward, but, uh, you know, it's always easier to kind of, uh, request another study or ask for more detail and, and it ends up being death by a thousand cuts that way. Rob, I think we just jumped into talking about federal lands without sort of explicitly saying that we're talking about federal lands. Um, can you tell us sort of how much of this transmission um, infrastructure will need to be built on federal lands and how big of a player federal lands are compared to state, private, et cetera. Yeah, sure. It is a significant chunk, particularly in the West, of course, so much federal land uh, and so much opportunity for long haul transmission in the West. Um, uh, Some in the East, but really mainly in the West. Um, and, uh, I mean, I, I don't know that there's really any significant transmission in the West that doesn't touch some federal land, uh, or another. So it becomes a big, uh, a big issue, um, and, and different land management agencies, um, have, you know, are involved. And so, uh, there's been industry calls for years and years for sort of better coordination as the first step, right? If you have different land management agencies, they, you know, they, they could, you know, coordinate with each other. Uh, I think there's a lot that can be done. And that's supposed to be part of the purpose of NEPA, right? Is to do that stuff on the front end. Yeah. yeah, That's right. That's right. right. Um, So this is, I mean, there's a significant management issue here. And I I think the Biden administration is doing a lot to process things efficiently. Uh, It does help. I think that um, um, the, uh, Ira Bill had uh, had money for for more permitting people at some of these agencies that that 
that is a constraint and, and that uh, those resources certainly certainly help. And the, the dashboards and things like that, there's more federal, there's more sort of coordination through OMB and this uh, federal permitting uh, council um, that was driven, I think, largely by the Fast 41 Act some years back. So there's a lot of that type of coordination that can be done. I'm, I'm sure more, uh, but but that's uh, that's a that's a big issue. So what are the obvious solutions here? You you mentioned we don't need to fundamentally alter NEPA. We see some of the arguments being well, we just need to put artificial timeline deadlines or page limit deadlines on NEPA review and. The counter-argument that I have seen to that is that just invites more litigation because you're then encouraging cutting corners that lead opens the door to more lawsuits saying, well, you should have done X, Y, and Z, and you didn't because of these page limits. So what what is the way forward to make this faster without either cutting those corners or undermining why NEPA is there? Yeah, yeah. Uh... I think there are a lot of things that can be done with accountability and, and timelines and things like uh, making more use of lead agency roles. So the Department of Energy could be, you know, lead agency for any and all permits. Um, uh, there's also the um, the private land issue. So let's distinguish from, you know, federal land where land agencies have their role and private land. Uh, I, I think there is still more that can be done uh, f- with uh, federal permitting on the private land side. Um, there's some awkward two steps be- on this backstop siting role between the Department of Energy and FERC and, e- and NEPA actually applies probably at both steps, which is kind of crazy for the same line. Um, so that there's sort of let's rationalize that process. Uh, I think that could that could help. Why, why do two NEPA reviews when you can do one that covers right. both? Sure, that that kind of thing makes sense. That's right. Um, uh, and in the in the context of a uh, of permitting legislation, there's also this cost allocation or federal funding issue with the tax credit. There's no reason why you couldn't add uh, support for that in in such a bill. Um, and there was uh, some of that, uh, a version of that in um, Manchin's um, permitting bill, but it was more than permitting, of course, because it did have a cost allocation provision last year. Um, Rob, how much of this is a structural problem unique to the United States? Um, for example, has Europe sort of done this better? Where are they in comparison to us? And uh, is there anything we can learn from Europe, for example? There is a lot we can learn from Europe. Europe is doing a lot fundamentally on the same issue. Uh, obviously, you know, it's the EU and member states or countries, right? But, and here we're the, you know, United States with the federal government trying to direct and guide the, you know, the member states, uh, so to speak. But they're actually doing a lot of what they call interconnectors between countries. So they're, they're upgrading the transmission. They actually have a uh, a minimum transfer capacity requirement between countries and and utilities uh, that comes from the the EU. Um, they have a 
organization of all the grid operators called ENSOE, and they kind of develop these requirements and, uh, and um, you know, work on the transmission between countries. They're doing a tremendous amount with uh, offshore wind to share back power back and forth. Uh, the UK as an island is getting all these connectors built, laying cable under the water. Um, the North Sea has offshore wind and HVD, so high voltage uh, direct current cables, um, connected countries and connecting offshore wind farms. Uh, I think they're uh, they're just a little ahead of us, right? They they were you know they were more committed on climate. They've always had energy security concerns even before the Ukraine attack, uh, but now obviously post uh, Ukraine attack, they're in a they're really hustling to get uh, to electrify as much as possible, get off of gas as much as they can. Uh, so that means, that means what? Well, it means wind and solar, right? And if you want wind and solar, you need transmission. So they're doing it in a, on a major scale uh, over there. In fact, it's hard now for some of our transmission developers in the U.S. to to get the components because- uh, Oh, Europe interesting. Is, <laughs> so you're starting Europe to have is, some supply chain issues. That's right. We got supply chain issues in transmission driven by Ukraine and mm -hmm. uh, European demand for- you know, all, all the same parts, yeah. Uh, you know, all the converter stations and cables and all of those things. So as something resembling permitting reform comes back up in Congress, who knows whether with this current House and the Senate, uh, there's any chance of a, a bill coming together. But if it did, what would be in your dream bill for for electric transmission and the grid either in terms of permitting or funding what's what's missing yeah uh i would say it would have three things um kind of going back to those three p's on planning planning permitting and paying i think it should uh on the planning area direct FERC to require uh inter-regional planning uh between regions um uh, probably with a, a minimum requirement like Europe has, as well as a joint plan together requirement. Um, on cost allocation, I think that same directive would, uh, you know, cover cost allocation for those those same lines. Um, uh, I would on the um, I would include a, a tax credit to kind of alleviate the impact on ratepayers and get us out of this never ending argument about who benefits by how much um, that happens at the FERC process. Um, so that would, you know, lower the cost of transmission for everybody. Uh, and then on the, finally, on the third P, the, the permitting part, um, I would do um, on the kind of public land and, um, uh, you know, uh, permit, side, you know, NEPA kind of side of things would add some uh, deadlines, accountability, you know, get lines into the FIPSI process. That's that federal permitting um, council and other, other areas where there's um, uh, faster processing and coordination between the agencies. Uh, and on the private land side, that's, I would improve the current uh, clunky process of backstop siting that involves both DOE and FERC and, and collapse that at, at one agency and collapse the NEPA process to be one. Simplest way to do that is just say, let's just say the really big lines that 
that clearly are national interest in scope, like a thousand megawatts and above, just put those at FERC and don't argue about whether it's national interest or not. I mean, if it's, if it's that high a voltage, it's, it's going to, it's it's got national implications. Yeah. It's going to necessarily affect many States. So, uh, so that would, that would do that. And um, yeah, those, if we did all three of those things, those would make a significant difference. So Rob, last question for you here. Um, a lot of our listeners uh, work in the conservation arena um, and environmental arena in general. How can people who do work in conservation work together with clean energy advocates to move smart, responsible permitting reform and also the other measures you just mentioned forward? Sure. Well, the planning processes are are really good places to uh, to engage. And if we're successful in getting these planning you know, groups and processes set up, then they have open participation. Um, there's two levels of planning to keep in mind. One is kind of the macro level. Well, we need, you know, power to move from region X to region, region Z. Uh, and um, that's uh, kind of too abstract to engage with on like a, you know, land use or wildlife or conservation basis. But the next stage is when you're actually talking about citing a line, like literally, do you go across this parcel of land or that parcel of land, or can you get onto a highway to go through this, or can you underground part of it here or, you know, things like that. That's, that's where there are real land use choices. And of course, every parcel of land is dear to somebody. So, you know, people need to be engaged in that, in that process. All right. We'll leave it there. Rob Gramlich with, Grid Strategies, LLC. I really appreciate you uh, breaking down a really wonky set of issues into something I I certainly found a whole lot more accessible uh, than I expected today. I'm really thankful for that. So thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for your interest and to your listeners too. In good news this week, ExxonMobil told investors that it's no longer interested in drilling new wells in the Arctic. A statement sent to shareholders says ExxonMobil does not hold any active leases within the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, nor is it pursuing any development there. The letter also says that ExxonMobil is not planning any future exploration activity in the Arctic. This follows a trend of oil companies pulling out of Alaska for financial reasons. Three major oil companies relinquished drilling leases in Alaska's Arctic National Wildlife Refuge last year. Five major U.S. banks and many insurance companies have also stepped away from Arctic oil financing. The news about ExxonMobil could also make it politically easier for the Biden administration to extend protections for the entire Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, as well as the National Petroleum Reserve Alaska. And that's all we've got for today's episode. If you like what you heard here, review us wherever you are listening right now. That helps new listeners find us. If you have comments or complaints, send them to podcast at westernpriorities.org. And finally, quick note, we are going to be at the Society of Environmental Journalists Conference in Boise this week. If you are too, please drop us a line. We'd love to meet you in person, grab a coffee or a beer. So let us know and we'll see you in Idaho. Thanks again to Rob Gramlich for joining us to break down the permitting story. And thank you for listening to The Landscape.